Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 94. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today we have the black belt, David Hamilton. He's a graduate of the University of Georgia who has had a long and extensive career as an entrepreneur that has included owning a property management business, a real estate investor, and currently owns and operates an insurance agency. He talked about the importance of embracing the process in jiu-jitsu and business instead of focusing on the outcome. He shared how crucial it was for him to have a mentor in his life that taught him many lessons, including the one that inspired me to title this podcast, Keep It Simple. Stick around for my final thoughts after the interview when I expand on the topic of keeping it simple. Stay tuned right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Woos! The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free jiu-jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, David Hamilton. David is a black belt from Rory Singer. He's a graduate of the University of Georgia who has had a long and extensive career as an entrepreneur that has included owning a property management business, a real estate investor, and currently owns and operates an insurance agency. He also believes in embracing civic duty and has invested his time, skills, and energy in making a positive impact in the community. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's talk how martial arts got into your life for jiu-jitsu. Did you train anything before jiu-jitsu? I did not. I remember when I was really young, I used to uh, beg my mother to let me sign up for taekwondo, and she never did. She kept me out of it, and I was sort of late in life that I, that I found it. I was almost 30 years old before I ever set foot in uh, the gym with Adam and Rory and Good. graduated. Good for you. Was, has, yeah. I was definitely non-traditional when I walked in for the first time, you know, I was, I felt like the old guy in the room uh, and it, um, you know, it stuck though, thankfully. Yeah. What sparked you to pursue jujitsu to start training? Uh, very specifically, I was, going to get married. I knew I was going to get married in about a year. And I had seen a picture of myself that someone took. And obviously, maybe other people have had an experience like this where you don't really have a, a, uh, an objective image of yourself in your mind. You picture yourself looking one way, but the reality is other people are perceiving you very differently. And I remember I had the opportunity to meet one of the football coaches here at the University of Georgia, and somebody snapped a Polaroid that moment and I still have this picture it was taken almost 20 years ago now at this point Um, but I saw myself for the first time in that picture and I realized how much weight I had gained you know from the point that I got out of college around 21 till that point I was 27 or 28 years old I'd spent most of my 20s drinking a lot of beer staying up late and I just was not taking care of myself and we were going to get married. I'd gotten engaged and it was as simple of an explanation as I wanted to lose a little bit of weight so I could fit into my suit better. And I had always been attracted to, uh, the UFC. I remember when I was a freshman in college, we would pool our money and get the UFC fights in the dorm room. And that I was always a fan of that. And that never left me. And I was in my career and I actually had an employee working for me, a guy that was a few years younger that was really into jujitsu. Uh, and he started, we started going to the local YMCA and just, he was showing me a few moves, you know, nothing. He didn't really, you know, he hadn't had a whole lot of formal training. It was very, very casual, 
but it was enough to where I got interested in learning more and uh, a couple years went by and then when I realized I really wanted, really wanted to get serious about getting fit, even a little bit more fit, I walked into the gym for the first time. And Rory's got a funny story about that. He may, I won't share it on the podcast, but <laughs> about how bad my first night went. So, uh, You know, what's interesting is that a lot of people that come to my school, I mean, exactly like you, man, I just want to get in better shape and learn how to defend myself. And they end up not, they not even have an idea until they actually start training more often, like the mental and the emotional benefits of training jujitsu. You know, so you go in, you don't know much what to expect. So now when you look back from your journey, when you started training, how do you feel you just relate to life? I think the fact that I was a little bit older when I walked in for the first time gave me a, a slightly different perspective. And it's been reinforced over the years as I've watched younger guys and women uh, come into the gym. You know, the, the, the typical student that would fit this mold, and I'm sure you've seen folks like this, somebody will walk in and they'll, you know, they state all their goals in the world up front. I want to be a black belt. I want to be a world champion. I want to be this. I want to be that. And they, they're only thinking about the end. They're only thinking about the goal at the very end. They're not focused on the process itself. And I think the fact that I was a little bit older and I was forced to slow my game down, I was forced, I'm not an athlete naturally. Um, I had to learn how to sort of move in baby steps throughout the process. But maybe I was applying a bit of knowledge that I learned professionally just by virtue of the fact that I'd been in the working world for eight or 10 years, you know, prior to the fact that prior to the time I ever set foot on the mat. And so I, I just learned to take it a little bit slower. And I think that that I, I, I definitely firmly believe that that is the best recipe for success on the mat and it's the best recipe for success sort of long-term in life, you know, professionally don't get, when, when you get too fixated, I've seen guys burn out because they want immediate satisfaction. They want immediate gratification. They want to be able to throw the perfect arm bar. They want every, you know, they want every, uh, every match to be at competitive speed and then they do it for six months and they burn out and they're done. And a lot of those guys are the same, folks that I see bouncing from job to job, sort of always trying something new and nothing's ever really sticking because they're so focused on the outcome and not focused on the process. And jujitsu, I think, is has given me sort of a unique perspective in how important that is. Yeah, no, this is great because when I look back, you know, I've been practicing jujitsu for 30 years. And when I look at my younger days, heavily focused in competition, was all about the outcome, you know what I mean? And as you get older, you start to, you know, see with different eyes. So it's very interesting for me to see my transformation in jiu-jitsu, looking in different eyes from like so outcome-driven when being surrounded by a place that is just all champions you're trying that that's what we're trying to do. To have like a um you know, as you mentioned about thinking more of the process, the learning, the improving. And so it's been interesting journey for me now talking about the entrepreneurship you went to college before college were you already having some entrepreneurial let's say tendencies already doing some stuff or that's basically after college that you start to get all in in entrepreneurship well my dad was a small business owner and when i was in probably my freshman or sophomore year he started up he started a family business that he ran for about 20 years and i would go home on the weekends and work with them and he had his the early the first stage of his career he was a banker for about 20 years and then he uh long story short there was a lot of banking turmoil in america in the early 90s late 80s and he basically got aged out of that industry and was forced to find something new. And he started a small business right around the time I was going off to college. And so I would come home on the weekends, I would help work at the family business. And I saw the sort of freedom and independence that it gave him being self-employed. I was, um, not to go too deep into this, but I always played music. I've been a musician my entire life. And when I was in college, Athens, Georgia is a big music town. There's a lot of bands. It's an easy place to come and sort of try to make a go of it in terms of uh, having a, having success in playing in a band. And I was doing that all the time I was in college. I gr when I graduated, I had visions of doing that professionally. 
and I was forced quickly to realize that I wasn't going to be able to pay the bills uh, playing music. And so I, I got a job uh, working for a consulting firm and right out of college and I lasted about six months and the owner of the firm um, sat me down and he fired me and he did me the best. It was the best favor anybody's ever done for me. And he even said at that time, I was 21 years old, six months out of college. He said, I'm going to let you go because it is clear that you, you are going to be better suited figuring out how to make life work for yourself rather than working for someone else. And at the time I didn't really understand what he was saying. I was a little bit mad about it. Um, and I was still playing music. So I was forced to find, keep to find another job. And I went and got a part-time job in an insurance agency. And this was a much better fit for me because I went to work for a mentor. You know, he's a lifelong friend and mentor at this point who was completely, he completely embraced a much more entrepreneurial sort of let's try this, let's try that sort of philosophy, philosophy about different things in life. And it was a great, partnership and it was a great fit and I immediately you know started building on that and realized I I that what the other guy who had fired me told me was correct I was much better suited being self-employed and so I focused entirely at that point on how do I stay in Athens a which it's a easy place to live it's a great place to live it's an inexpensive place to live so I was kind of uniquely situated that there wasn't a lot of economic pressure for me to move to Atlanta you know, and I, I think it was just sort of a perfect storm of all these events, coupled with the fact that I'd seen my dad, how happy he was being self-employed versus the, the 20 years prior to that, where he was working, you know, in a large corporate environment. And it just kind of all came together for me that way. So tell me more about your mentor, because that's one of the things that when we talk here at a podcast, we, we have a lot of guests to suggest, and I'm like, man, look up someone that maybe is doing what you're doing or living the life you like to live or some area that you like to know more and looking for a mentor is a great way to do so. So what are some of like the, when you look back, some of the key crucial takeaways that you got that man really shaped your, your, let's say your career as an entrepreneur. Do you remember some of the concepts, ideas that he shared with you? I think key among those was he, this individual in particular just had a great love of life and he was not afraid to try anything at any time. So if we had a random idea, we'd sit down and we'd talk about it and we'd say, let's go for it. And that's kind of how I fell into uh, acquiring and managing rental properties is because he owned a few rental houses and I said, hey, I want to learn how to do that. And he was the kind of person he said, all right, well, let's do it. And within a week, we were sitting down in a bank asking to borrow money with my name on the note and his name right there next to me because he was willing to take that chance and say, you know, I was, I was just a kid. I was 22 years old. And he knew that he could, you know, that I could pull my weight in terms of helping maintain the property and he would bring some financial stability and it just fit. It just worked. And that formula was just a good recipe for us. We found that we could apply that over and over again. Um, he wasn't afraid to, you know, take those kind of chances. And he also wasn't afraid to invest time and energy in somebody, you know, half his age who didn't know anything compared to what he knew. Uh, but also I feel like watching how this particular individual managed his wealth um, and, just had this really sort of innate understanding of how money works, how investments work, uh, you know, how there's a real sort of clear line between good decisions and bad decisions when it comes to, you know, investments and finances. You know, he had a rule of thumb was if you couldn't make the numbers work, you know, on a cocktail napkin, the numbers were never going to work. And I myself learned that from him and, you know, my, I come from a great family, supportive family. My dad was a banker, but when I was young, we never really, I didn't learn much about money. I didn't learn much about how, how it worked. You know, I remember I was 18 years old, but my freshman year of college, I'd already racked up, you know, a thousand dollars in credit card debt and had no idea how I was going to pay it back. And it wasn't until after I got out of school and partnered with this mentor that I rapidly started figuring out, you know, the importance of certain financial skill sets <clears throat> and it's just something that he just, just came naturally to him. And just by virtue of exposure to that, I just picked up so much 
uh, I am eternally grateful. I mean, I'm not, I'd say the two sort of, you know, other than my immediate family, the two biggest influences in my life have been, you know, my relationship with the gym and jujitsu and the Singer brothers and uh, my relationship with my mentor early on in my career. Um, and I'm just very, very grateful for the opportunities that he gave me. Beautiful. So we talk about essentially three things, execution, which is having the idea just, okay, let's do it, which goes along with the taking risk too, not being too like, oh, if is this going to work or that's going to work, just taking the risk, executing, and the financial aspect, of course, the three things that entrepreneurs, you have to, you have to execute, you have to take risk, and you have to watch your money. So definitely are three big things. What point you started to kind of do your own thing? Uh, around, let's see, I graduated college in 1998 and within two years, I went to work with my mentor, uh, six months after that. And within another year of that, I owned my own insurance agency and it was the same sort of formula. You know, there was an opportunity. He, uh, there was, he, he was an insurance agent. I worked for him in his insurance agency and while we were, we had started building our real estate business together. Um, at that point, another insurance agency, we found out about one that was up for sale and he approached me and said, would you be interested in buying this together? Uh, with the goal being that he would step away then within a few years. And I said, absolutely. And he came, he came to me and it just, you know, walked into work one day and, and walked out with a plan that I didn't expect to have. And within, within a couple months, I was an agent, I was at least a partial owner of an agency. And then within about a year of that happening, I then bought him out and was the sole owner. And we still remained close. We didn't compete with each other. It was a very sort of overlapping thing. And we had our mutual uh, uh, real estate business together at that point. It, it happened very, very fast. And it happened, I remember just sort of blinking my eyes. I can't, you know, I can't believe I'm in this position. And it, it was, like you said, he was willing to execute. He was willing to take a little bit of risk. And he saw good opportunities, you know, where they presented themselves. And I think he recognized um, that it'd be a good fit for me and that we would be able to continue to work well together. Uh, and there's another aspect of that, too, that I think translates to jujitsu you know, is this, this, and I, the same concept of working the numbers out on a napkin, you know, the simple concept tends to be the best concept. I'm sure there's a more elegant way of phrasing that, but I learned from him the importance of simplicity in your planning, the importance of simplicity in your, um, you know, the execution of the plan. And as I've learned jujitsu in my life and incorporated that, that is constantly reinforced, you know, coach Adam, coach Roy, you know, the simple move is always going to be the best move whether you're on the mat or whether you are, you know, planning out your life. Um, and I believe that strongly. Now, during this journey, what are some of the, of course, you must have faced some struggles, which is part of the deal. It comes with the territory. But when you think about it, what are some of the toughest struggles that you face and what did you learn from it? What pops up in your mind? Uh, in the business realm? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's an easy one to answer in everybody remembers what happens, what happened to the real estate market in 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. um, that was sort of right at the peak of where we had been acquiring real estate. I owned a few apartment complexes, uh, duplexes, single family houses, sort of scattered throughout the area. And we were, we quickly realized how rapidly the environment was changing. They were all rental properties, primarily rented to college students in a college town. And we found within the span of about a year that it suddenly was getting a lot harder to rent our apartments. Uh, there was a whole influx of new competition. There was a lot of new construction because money was really cheap. Uh, you had investors coming in and throwing up brand new rental houses, brand new apartment complexes. And almost overnight we were exposed and finding it extremely difficult to keep our, uh, our, units occupied, uh, at least with the sort of caliber of tenant that was, you know, helping us <laughs> maintain some semblance of a profit margin. Um, we felt the ground starting to shake and we knew that 
the world was going to change in a big way. And the mortgage crisis, you know, shortly happened, not, 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 not too long after that. I had a lot of sleepless nights. We got out of thing. I sold my last major sort of exposed piece of real estate prior to the financial crisis in about 2007, at the very end of 2007. And everything just fell apart economically after that. We literally dodged a, a bullet. And I remember when we had the properties listed for sale, if we weren't sure we would be able to sell them. And I didn't sleep for weeks, just, just, just constant sweaty palms and just worried sick because we were faced with sort of sometimes the consequence of taking risk is, you know, it can come back and bite you. Had that not gone our way, I would have lost, you know, we would have lost everything. We would have lost all those properties back to the bank. You know, we'd have been faced with bankruptcy and, and serious sort of drastic financial consequences. Thankfully we, we just got out from underneath it and um, it, it worked out, but it was very close. Uh, in the business realm, that was <laughs> that's about as close as it gets. So. And now when you think about it, is there any lesson that you got from this, from the scenario, from everything was happening? Of course, you can't control that kind of stuff, right? No yeah. one could and stuff like that. But when you look back, what kind of lesson did you get from, from that period? I think I learned and, and, and this was reinforced by my mentor. Um, I'm always planning for the worst case scenario. Mm. I'm always looking at every decision as how, how are the, how are the ways that this can go wrong? And then I work backwards from there. Um, it's easy. And I've seen this happen in subsequent years, you know, after the financial crisis, 10, 12 years ago, a lot of people in this area, at least of the country, a lot of people lost a lot of money and went out of business and then things picked back up uh, a few years later and folks fell right back into the exact same patterns of, you know, uh, over-investing, not, they're too, too aggressively pursuing things on the belief that everything's going to just work out. And I've never had that kind of philosophy. I have a much more measured approach. And if it makes me a bit of a pessimist, uh, at least for me personally, that, that attitude has served me well. Um, I'm always sort of thinking through you know, what's the worst that can happen? How would that look? What's it going to be like? And as I'm stepping into any sort of investment decision or, or you know, business related decision. Uh, and, you know, I, and maybe, maybe that philosophy has held me back a little bit in terms of, you know, jujitsu and translating to sort of an athletic kind of approach. Because I see guys that are, you know, that have ascended the ranks much faster, um, you know, have gone on to achieve great things that have a much uh, less cautious approach than I do. And I'm sure I have sort of hobbled myself a little bit, but you know, I mean, it's all sort of swirled together in one big pot for me. It's just, it's just the way I am. So Mm -hmm. now, um, we're talking a little bit before recording and saying like things that you like to talk with people about career and entrepreneurship and Nowadays, there are a lot of people that end up doing stuff that are like, man, I wish I was doing, I was doing something else. You know, they're not um, really happy. Or sometimes they, they have some aspirations to start a business. And it's interesting you mentioned that when you got fired, like when you were 21, it didn't make sense to you back then. But eventually you saw that, you know, man, definitely I wasn't wired for, for this position. So for some people that are in transition right now, what kind of suggestions maybe you can give to people to, to find out, like, first of all, is entrepreneurship for you or not? Because it's not for everyone, right? So what do you tell people who are in transition and thinking about going to this route of entrepreneurship? Things to watch for. It, it fits perfectly with a message that we hear delivered on the mat almost every night. And it's, it's as simple as just keep showing up, just keep showing up. I did not grow up wanting to be an insurance agent. I never as a young, younger person envisioned, you know, doing that with my life. I had much grander visions of doing different things, but the reality is it has given me a a great quality of life and a lot of happiness. And it has, uh, given me the opportunity to pursue all other kinds of, uh, hobbies and passions in my life. When I 
when I fell into that career, into this career, there was no element of it. And even today, there's no element of it where I say, man, this is the, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. It's, it's just the recognition that I've continuously made the choice that this is, this is the track that is laid bet the best track laid for me. And I'm just going to keep, keep taking one step forward, one step forward. Um, on the mat, we see it. And I think the reason that the coaches continuously reinforce that message is people get, people get fixated on sometimes the feeling that they should be happier, the feeling that they should be doing better. You know, that's uh, the grass is greener sort of scenario. And they focus so much on that, that they stop showing up. They stop taking one step forward. And I've learned through, you know, a couple personal experiences in my life, I've learned that, it, you know, it could all be over like that. And so if, if the, if the ultimate outcome is the most important thing, the only way to get there is just to continue moving forward. There's never a point where you're always going to be hundred percent satisfied with what you're doing. There's never a point where you can say, I'm making all the money that I want to make the, but the people that are successful that I've known in my life are the people that just didn't quit, you know, and they recognize that nothing's ever perfect. You're never doing exactly what you want to do at every minute but that's life and you just have to keep moving forward and find the satisfaction where you can find it. You know, for me, the silver lining of being self-employed and I mean, a, a, a obvious silver lining of it being self-employed in a small town with a relatively flexible business is that I can go spend a lot of time on the mats with my friends. You know, I can spend my evenings, my nights and my weekends doing that or cultivating other hobbies and passions. And that is supported by essentially what is a tolerance that I've built up for you know what it's it's not it's not an ideal career but it works for me mm-hmm. and it works for me because we just kept plugging along and just kept sticking with it and uh you know that's i see folks struggling with that concept uh, on a you know pretty regularly um and i just say that's the most important thing is just don't stop you know whatever it may be just don't stop yeah and it's as you mentioned, the showing up is the, the consistency, and that's what high performers do and successful people do. You consistently doing your work, of course, as you mentioned, not always things going to happen exactly the way you want and, yeah. and wish, but uh, exactly just uh, keep showing up. And at the same time, sometimes uh, I talk with the people, they say, man, I, I really wanted something else. I don't know. I really don't know what to do. And sometimes I think the first thing to look into, like, what do you do not want to do? You know, at least if you don't know what you want to do, maybe just eliminate some of the stuff that, you know, this year I do not want to do. Okay, good. Start to kind of the elimination process to eventually start maybe going towards something that you enjoy. And like you said, you are at peace. I'm like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good with what I'm doing. And, um, but with that, there will be a lot of execution, a lot of uh, risks to take, and just part of the entrepreneurship journey, let's say. Now, what did you say it's a high-performance habit that you have, something you practice daily that has helped you in, in everything, jiu-jitsu, business, life? Uh, in terms of personal, like physical performance? Yeah, just I would yeah. say uh, when I say a habit, some people tell me like, man, my uh, great habit that I have is to sleep eight hours. It's important to me. So I make sure to keep this habit. So whatever habit do you feel that uh, uh, impacts? It could be reading. It could be, you know, whatever that is. Sure. Uh, I, I couldn't function if I didn't get a good solid workout in every morning. I start my day running, lifting weights, sitting in the steam room in the sauna. And it's a meditative process for me, but I didn't always do that. I, you know, I'd say it's in the past 10 years that I've managed to really sort of find my ideal weight, my ideal um, sort of physicality and that complements jujitsu and just has made me stronger and more conditioned with everything in life. Um, it has given me discipline uh, in a way I, I've learned that discipline in a way that I didn't always have it. And even probably the first four or five years of me, uh, you know, grappling and doing jujitsu, even as a hobbyist, I still was, uh, you know, I, I still wasn't eating right. I was drinking too much. You know, I was not doing the proper amount of cardio or lifting. And I struggled a lot more, 
you know, on the mat with that, I, um, I get something just clicked. I, well, I know what it was is I signed up for a mountain climbing expedition, oh, close to eight years ago now. And it, uh, I knew I had to get in shape for it. And so I've spent about six months really intensively trying to lose weight and build my cardio. And I went and climbed, it was a uh, Mount Rainier in, in, uh, Washington state. And it was not, it's, you know, it's a big mountain and it's brutally difficult to climb. And I thought I was in great shape. I was in, at that point I was in the best shape I'd ever been in my life. And I, Gustavo, I literally thought I was going to die. Like coming down <laughs> off that mountain, I said, this, as good as I had gotten, it wasn't even a fraction of as good as I needed to be. And that really, really clicked for me. And so at that point I just started adopting much more sort of stringent dietary habits. And, you know, I started cycling a lot and just got in a really, really sort of almost hypnotic regimen with, and it's not, it's not, I'm not crazy about it, but I have to do it. And as soon as I adopted that philosophy and I started just putting that structure in my life in terms of controlling my weight and controlling my diet and controlling, you know, how much exercise I was doing, a lot of other things started falling into place for me uh, on the mat. And I also found that there was discipline that manifested itself in my career. People were looking to me, you know, why, why are you always eating a salad at lunch? Well, it's because I used to eat fried chicken, you know, two plates of fried chicken at lunch every day and I was 50 pounds overweight, but now I don't. And I'm a lot, I feel better. I'm happier. I have higher energy levels. So I'm just, you know, if you said, you know, what's the one thing that you could just take out of my life today where I would be freaking out in a couple of days, it's that, you know, and, but it's, it's as much about the discipline that it has sort of, that I've learned from mm -hmm. just finding that routine and sticking with it. The same as what we were talking about earlier with work. It's like, it's going to suck. You're never going to be a hundred percent happy, but the point is just keep doing it and everything else gets easier from there. So that's, a, that's definitely a habit that I have. I couldn't live without. Great. Now, what did you say? We talk about some of the lessons that you got from your mentor, so you can use them or not, but I'm just asking what is the, probably the best, one of the best piece of advice that you ever received. So that could be from your mentor or not in any area, anything that uh, pops up. There's so many things that, that, you know, it's, it's just a, it's such a broad sort of arc to think about all the stuff that we worked on together, but just, I, I think that, that coming back to that message of simplicity, you know, mm -hmm. that it, if it, you know, if, if you can't figure it out quickly, you know, in simple terms that a lot of times that's, that's all that's ever really required. Um, but I'd have to think about that. I'm not, I don't know if I've got a good, I don't know if I have better, you may have to edit that part out, but I, I don't know if I have a better answer than that. No, <laughs> so, it's, it's all good. Yeah. And now, not that you want anything different in your life, of course, but when you look back, you fresh out of college and going into this entrepreneurship route. What if you had a chance to have a conversation with a young David, just say like, hey, you know, uh, from what I've seen so far in life, this is just one little tip I'd like to give to you. And I always mention this, not that you want anything different in your life, but it's just everything's part of the, the journey, but something that if you could be the mentor for one day, go back and talk with your younger version, what would you tell them? Well, when I was young, I never played any team sports. I did very little athletic anything. And the camaraderie and that the, the, the feeling of being a part of something that jujitsu has brought into my life, I wasted years not having that. I wish, you know, I wish when I was 19, 20, you know, I had, I had, I had that as part of my life, you know, all through my earlier twenties, I think the entire trajectory of my life would have been different because being a part of something that's bigger than yourself is really, really important. And I didn't fully understand that until, you know, I got involved with, uh, you know, our team here in town and the singers and, and just everything that that's brought, you know, as an adult, as a mature person, I can look back now and just recognize that that was a big hole. Uh, whether, when I was a young, when I was young, when I was a kid, you know, and when I was a teenager and, and through college and through my twenties, I just, I recognize now that I was kind of languishing in that respect. And I didn't have, I didn't have that 
support system, you know, outside of family, of course, but I didn't have that, that sort of, I didn't have a way to sort of recognize how I fit in. So it was hard for me to be objective about myself because I just was, you know, as a ship without a rudder and being a part of that team and that family that, you know, jujitsu and, and SBG has brought to me over the years. It's like, I, I can see myself much more clearly now. Um, and have a much more objective perspective. And if I could add 10 more years of that onto my life, you know, by incorporating that philosophy when I was 18, I, you know, I would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah. And it's cool to see now. I mean, that's this, the, the age you started around uh, 30, right? Man, I see a lot in, at least in my academy. And, and I notice even in Arizona, jujitsu in general, like more people over 30 starting their journey. You know, and that's one of the things that you hear everyone say, like, man, I wish I had started this earlier. And then yeah, I mean, that's one, of, that's one of the most, um, <clears throat> let's say, consistent comment that I hear. And it's good because a lot of people, sometimes they come in with a, the mindset 30, which is pretty young, but we still have a lot of people come with a mindset like, I don't know if I'm too old for this. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a but people do have the, the kind of questions sometimes, you know? Well, and as, as, as a gym owner, you know, and watching sort of the business decisions that, uh, you know, that are, and how they're made at SBG and part of the SBG family, you know, knowing the importance of environment and how the environment that you cultivate within the gym directly influences people's desire to get involved. And, you know, a different way to translate that would be, when I first started, there were no, it was all, you know, 22 year old dudes with their shirts off and they're just wailing on each other because every one of them wanted to be in the UFC. Well, there were 10 or 15 guys in that room on, on, a, on the busiest night because the reality was there weren't more than 10 or 15 crazy dudes in Athens that were willing to subject themselves to that kind of punishment on a regular basis. So if a 35 year old guy walked into that, that room years ago, you know, when it was, a, when we were, when everybody wanted to be an MMA fighter, uh, most, most guys, most mature people would walk out. Now it's not here in Athens with SBG. It's not like that. It is entirely a family environment. My, I have two sons, a five-year-old and a nine-year-old, and they've both have been on the mat since they were, you know, around two or three years old. Um, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of children and kids of all ages on the mats. And I've seen just sort of, you know, as, as a, just an observer, I've seen, I've lost track of how many of the parents of those kids, they sign their children up. And then a year later, next thing you know, you look over and you see mom and she's got a, she's got a gi on and she's taking, you know, the immersions class or the foundations classes and, and starting it's because they've seen then they've had a chance to watch and see, you know, that it's a welcoming, safe environment. They see what their kids are getting out of it and they can't help but reflect. I think at least they can't help but reflect on their own life and saying, man, I want to be a part of that too. And I, I you know, my hat's off to, what you know what the guys here have accomplished in terms of creating an environment that inspires somebody that would never under ordinary circumstances picture themselves you know and and it's probably more so for women as well you know 35 years old and putting a gi on for the first time and letting somebody put hands on you and and try to choke you out you know that's a huge huge sort of mental leap for for anybody to make and to be able to sort of cultivate an environment that um, where people eventually on their own timeline feel comfortable doing that. It's a testament to the skill of the gym owner, but it's also a testament to the art form itself too, I think, um, you know, meaning jujitsu specifically. And uh, it's just been a lot of fun for me. As long as I've been around, it's been fun watching that sort of evolution because it kind of tracked the arc of my life as well. You know, getting, getting married, having kids, getting older, having a couple of knee surgeries and that kind of thing and knowing that I can still stay involved and then seeing guys my age walking in for the very first time and saying, Oh man, it's, you're going to love it. You know? Yeah. I was, I kind of got this phase here in the U S too. I've been in the U S for 21 years and especially around, I think it was 2004, maybe when I have the first, um, the ultimate fighter came out. Uh, that's when I fell around kind of like the shift in the market as far as people like, what is jiu-jitsu, what is MMA, people start to get more interested in that. So I, uh, so I know exactly what you're saying. You know, a lot of guys that uh, started to kind of uh, want to become fighters and there's some people that are like, man, I got 
I have no desire to become a fighter. So now what is the balance? And absolutely, I think most of the gyms are, it's tough for me to say, I don't know as far as uh, MMA schools, but it has, uh, it, it has changed a lot. Yeah. You know, and people to be more aware, like, okay, the fighters, you know, maybe they're going to work here on the side. There's this group that is, um, is not thinking about that, but they still want to challenge themselves in a tournament and so forth. So it's definitely a lot more laid back than it used to be. Like you got an MMA gym back in the day, like, yeah, man, get ready for war. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, totally. And that's the way when I first walked in, I mean, Forrest Griffin was on, you mentioned ultimate fighter. You know I mean? He was one of the first people I met walking in the gym for the first time. And, you know, within a few weeks I had held hand pads for him to demonstrate while he, you know, he was demonstrating how to throw a, a you know, a left hook and a right cross. And I remember like how my hands felt, like there's no way in hell <laughs> you know <laughs> i would ever i would ever subject myself to the kind of punishment that a dude like that's going to dole out but thankfully you know I, I was for me at that time i was able to find a little niche where i did fit in and just like we talked about earlier just kind of kept show just kind of kept coming around and making mm -hmm. friends and, and and showing up and uh but it has it has changed completely and now the game you know and i, I don't follow the ufc nearly as closely as i used to a because it's just so such a huge thing now and there's so many events and so many fighters but it's clear that the days of you know even 10 15 years ago where you could kind of half-ass it and you know you know fighting a few local shows and and win a few local belts kind of thing and you know ha still have a job or, or you know a night you know a job working night shift someplace and have and sort of fight your way up to the ufc like that's gone you know, those days are over. Those guys now are just so, I mean, they're just, it's unbelievable the level of dedication and athleticism. And so I see, I see, you know, younger kids coming in and we don't see it as much now, but you know, somebody, somebody walks into the gym, like, I want to be a UFC champion. It's like, you know, really fast, like you listen, if, if that was going to happen for you, <laughs> you would already be on a completely different trajectory in your life than you are. So let's, let's, let's scale that back then. Let's find like, you know, how can we still have all this be a positive a net positive in your life you know and maybe accept the fact that you don't necessarily have the time you know or resources or talent to to take it to that level so it's it's just it's interesting watching the evolution of the sport but it's like you said earlier you know finding it's it's fun watching how it's actually opened up to this much broader you know base of people that can participate not necessarily you know in eight ounce gloves you know, punching each other in the face, but you know, anybody can put on a gi and do some jujitsu, even if you, it doesn't matter how old you are. So. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have the habit of reading? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what is a book that has made an impact on you? Of course it comes different moments of your life, different topics, but uh, what is a book that stands out to you and, and why? Oh man. Uh, well, there's a book I'm sure a lot of people have read, and I read it early on and it's a very easy read and I can't recommend it enough, but uh, rich dad, poor dad. Um, and it's, I read that probably within that first year of me sort of partnering up with my uh, mentor and he, he turned me onto that book. He said, read this. Cause it just taught me those. It was just shockingly simple in terms of sort of the fundamental principles of investing and how money works. And I think, you know, if it's a, if it's strictly business related or finance related, everybody should start with that book. And you could hand that book to a 14 year old kid and the narrative style is written in a way that it's, it's easy to read. It's not overly complicated. Um, and it just, the message just really hits home. Rich dad, poor dad, uh, obviously is, is a good one. How to win friends and influence people. I mean, this is kind of like an old man's yeah. sort of, <laughs> you know, reading list of, uh, you know, but the, and the reason those classics are classics is because, it, you know, those fundamental lessons are just, they, they never change. Yeah. Like um, you said before, the simplicity, they are simple. They're so yeah. simple and yeah. so efficient though. Absolutely. And then if, if, have you read the E-Myth? Are you familiar with the E-Myth? Absolutely. It yeah. really opened my eyes. Yeah. And the, the way I've described that one to folks is, you know, if you, if you bake, if you bake the best, if you bake the best pie in the world and you take your pie to every party you go to and everybody you ever talk to says, this is the best pie I've ever eaten. You should, you should start a pie making business. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a successful pie business just because you're the best pie maker around. And, the idea that 
those are two totally separate things, you know, that building, operating and running a business is completely separate from, you know, what that specific widget or that talent that you may have that sort of fuels your fire and finding the way to kind of bridge the gap between the two. Uh, so that's, that's a fascinating book and a fascinating concept to me. And I, I recommend that one a lot. Yeah. I'll put the link in the descriptions for everyone to check it out and the e-myth uh, for sure. I mean, all of them, but uh, the e-myth is very interesting because as he was talking, I remember going like, oops, I think that's me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so many, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to relate with so many things that um, at some point you did it wrong, you know, yeah. or you're doing or some, at some point you did it like, oh, wow, I never thought about that. So it was uh, someone recommended me this probably like uh, 10 years ago. And uh, it was it was very eye opening for me. Yeah. So now getting close to the end of the interview, may have some people might be listening for the first time uh, the podcast. So usually what I do after the interview, I just reflect on what was said, and I create an audio from five to twelve minutes to inspire, impact, and improve your life, the listener, in some way. So that's the hard part of the interview. This here, it's easy because you're just giving the the content. Now, when I go and share my takeaway and everything, uh, I definitely put a lot more thought into it because I do, if I'm going to open my mouth to put some content, I want to make sure that, hey, is this going to help uh, people? So that's, that's the idea of always bringing guests you to share the experience and, and whatever. If you're listening and out of this whole interview and you can find something that, he's, that he said or I said for like 10 seconds, great. That's already worth your time. That's the way I look at a book. If I read a paragraph in a book that I was like, oh, wow, that was just completely open my The whole investment of the book is then just because of a page or sometimes even a paragraph can really change. So make sure that you stick around for my final thoughts after the interview. So what are you currently excited about, Dave? What's going on? We're recording this in March of 2020. So what, what you got? <laughs> uh, well, just working on putting together a couple business deals that could, um, for me personally, without getting into it, uh, you know, maybe over by the time we get to the summer, hopefully I have some new opportunities in my life. Um, professionally, uh, let's see. Oh, I'm about to get on an airplane in April. I'm supposed to be taking my family to Europe mm. and I'm watching all this coronavirus stuff yes. <laughs> expand. Are you still and, going? Uh, well, I mean, that's the plan right now. I think it would be, um, it's going to take them shutting down international air travel to stop us from going. I have mm. no, I don't have any personal fear of actually getting sick. I think that, you know, I think that component of it, at least what I've seen so far is a little bit over overstated and overblown. Uh, my biggest concern is, you know, getting overseas and then not being able to get and back getting stuck yeah. and getting stuck somewhere. I've actually had that happen to me before. Uh, and it's not a whole lot of fun and I wouldn't want my kids being stuck in quarantine for a couple of weeks. So maybe by the time you're listening to this, we'll have made it there and back safely. Uh, but it'll take them telling us that we are not allowed to go. I think before we not, before we don't go, hopefully the airport will be empty and the <laughs> make travel easier. Um, and between that and then watching the stock market this past week, I've been, my palms have been sweating about that. Too, so. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. So Dave it was a great interview, man. It's good. Cause sometimes we have so many school owners and I love when I have different people than just talking about, um, sometimes a jujitsu school or just learn more different, different experience. So it has been great, man. I appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for, thank you for thinking of me. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. So for all the listeners, stick around for my final thoughts. Oos. Let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with David Hamilton. If you're listening just to the final thoughts on Instagram at Gustavo Dantas BJJ, David is a black belt from Rory Singer. He's a graduate of the University of Georgia who has had a long and extensive career as an entrepreneur that has included owning a property management business, a real estate investor, and currently owns and operates an insurance agency. He talked about the importance of embracing the process in jiu-jitsu and business instead of focusing on the outcome. He shared how crucial it was for him to have a mentor in his life that taught him many lessons, including the one that inspired me to title this podcast, 
keep it simple. He learned early in his entrepreneurial career the importance of planning for the worst-case scenario, maintaining simplicity in all aspects. I'm going to share with you a two-minute audio from Evan Carmichael's YouTube channel talking about simplicity. First, Bert Rutten, who is a retired American aerospace engineer and entrepreneur, will be speaking, followed by Evan. Check it out. But what I try to encourage people to do is to have a breakthrough by finding a way to do it more simply. Uh, and even if the real simple one has a chance of, of uh, not working because it's too simple, well, try it anyway. Because in trying it, sometimes you'll stumble onto a solution on why it wouldn't work. And now you've really had a big gain. Now you have a simple thing that does work. And that's, that's the, real, the real challenge now. You can always make something work by adding complexity, but you can never make something affordable by adding complexity. This is a really important topic for entrepreneurs because we tend to overcomplicate things. We tend not to make things simple. We tend to add complexity to our business where it's not necessarily needed. And this applies to multiple areas in your business. It'll apply to how you manage your team, it'll apply to your schedule, it'll apply to your product design. Simplicity can help you in all areas of your business. Look at your schedule as an example. Look at the things that are booked into your schedule for the next week. How many of those things are actually going to contribute significant growth to your business? How can you simplify your schedule to add more value to what you're going to be doing today to your business? One of the things I used to do every day as I walked to my office in the morning is think about what is the thing, the single thing that I could do today to add significant value to my business. Keep it simple, focus on one main thing and if I get that accomplished, my business is going to grow. So my question of the day for you today is what holds you back from keeping things simple? Leave it in the comments below. I want to join in the discussion and hear what's holding you back. It's a great question. What holds you back from keeping things simple? In my case, I consistently have ideas and the problems that I end up trying to execute too many of them during the same period and I end up slammed. So very often I need to regroup, simplify things and work on or delegate the important and urgent tasks so that will help me to achieve my goal and you should do the same. Important tasks are tasks that contribute to long-term missions and goals. Urgent tasks are tasks that have to be dealt with immediately. These are things like phone calls or emails that will help to move the process forward. Tasks with upcoming deadlines and situations where you have to respond quickly. You might ask, how do I know what is most important? Well, one way to figure out what is most important is to use the Eisenhower method. Developed by former President Dwight Eisenhower, a five-star general in the United States Army, he used to say, I have two kinds of problems, the urgent and the important. The urgent is seldom important, and the important is seldom urgent. Based on Eisenhower method, Stephen Covey, the author of How to Win Friends and Influence People, developed the four-quadrant week plan, a tool that helps people organize and simplify their tasks on a weekly basis. Unlike most of the time management tools, that are based on daily planning. This plan based on four quadrants is the time management system that Stephen Covey recommends to help you to keep things simple and to put first things first in your life. We basically spend our time in four different ways, being urgent and important, the two factors that define an activity. Quadrant one, urgent and important. Quadrant three, urgent and not important. Quadrant four, not urgent and not important. Quadrant two, not urgent and important. Check out this audio from the YouTube channel, The Modeler, explaining the four quadrant time management system. What's up guys, today I wanna to talk to you about the time management system that the writer Stephen Covey teaches on his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The Four Quadrant Week Plan is a tool that helps people organize their tasks on a weekly basis, unlike most of the time management tools today that are based on daily planning. If you remember, the third habit of highly effective people says, put first things first. And this week plan, based on four quadrants, is the time management system that Stephen Covey recommends to help you do that. We basically spend our time in four different ways being urgent and important, the two factors that define an activity. 
Urgent is an activity that, as soon as it appears, it requires our immediate attention. It has to be done as soon as possible. It might be because it just takes a few moments to finish or because you've been postponing it and now there is not much time left to finish the task. Accepting a call from a friend and studying for a test you'll have to write tomorrow are simple examples of urgent tasks. Important means it is directly related to your long-term goals. It has to do with results. A task is important if it gets you near your biggest goals and closer to the person you intend to be in the future. For example, if you want to be a writer, reading is definitely an important habit for you to develop. Quadrant 1 includes both urgent and important goals. A life focused on this quadrant is usually full of stress since the deadlines and pressing problems always keep coming. In this quadrant, the things to do are very urgent and also important. That's why the people who have their lives focused on these activities are continuously working to solve crises and respond to deadlines. They become consumed by quadrant 1 activities since problems are always appearing one after another. And when they have a free time, they usually spend it trying to make themselves forget about their routine and activities to relax and waste time. Another way we spend our time is with urgent but not important activities. The main reason people spend the majority of their time in Quadrant 3 activities is the lack of clearly defined long-term goals. If you didn't take time to define your aspirations in life and the activities related to them, you are more likely to spend your time working on every task that appears in front of you. If all you have is a short-term focus, you will be constantly reacting to things that are urgent but not important, and you will be constantly changing your mind on what you really want to have or do. Quadrant 4 activities are also related with the lack of purpose in life. The activities here are not urgent nor important. They are pure time wasters and provide no meaningful value with time. As Stephen Covey said, People who spend time almost exclusively in quadrants 3 and 4 basically lead irresponsible lives. Effective people stay out of quadrants 3 and 4 because urgent or not, they are not important. Quadrant 2 activities are the ones you want to spend your time with. They are important but not urgent. They are directly related with the things you want the most in life and that usually take time to achieve. It deals with things like your spiritual life, building relationships, becoming financially literate, your physical health, and other long-range planning. The fact that they are not urgent is one of the things that makes us procrastinate on these things, even knowing we need to do them. Quadrant 1 deadlines and emergencies will always appear, and we all occasionally spend time with Quadrant 3 and 4 activities. That's why to be able to find time to work in your Quadrant 2 activities, you have to be proactive enough to reduce and when necessary say no to other less important tasks. Keep in mind that you're always saying no to something, wrote Stephen Covey. If it isn't to the apparent urgent things in your life, it is probably to the more fundamental, highly important things. Being effective is managing to get these important things done. Organizing your goals for the week ahead gives you a broader view compared with daily planning, and making your goals more Quadrant 2 focused will help you manage your time effectively. I hope you enjoyed the audio. I'm going to post the video on this episode's post at the BJJMentalCoachPodcast.com. To wrap up, I would like to share with you a similar question that Evan Carmichael asks himself daily. Reflect on this in the mornings. What is my mission today? What must I accomplish today to progress my life and get closer to achieving my goal? Now that you know what the most important thing is, reflect on it and decide the simplest way to approach it and go for it. Remember what Eisenhower said, you have two kinds of problems, the urgent and the important. The urgent is seldom important and the important is seldom urgent. Get your priorities straight and keep it simple. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.